Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. It's Air Talk on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. And, of course, our attention on Monterey Park, the San Gabriel Valley community, predominantly Chinese-American, a close-knit community that has been racked by tragedy with Saturday night's attack on two different ballroom dance facilities, one in Monterey Park, the other a short time later in the city of Alhambra. And it appears the two events are related. But it's in Monterey Park. Park where 10 people were killed, 10 others injured and hospitalized as a result of the shooting. And the man suspected of carrying out the attack uh, took his own life, according to police officials. Joining us to talk about how the community is dealing with a tragedy of this scope is member of Congress Judy Chu. Uh, the Congresswoman uh, represents a large swath of the San Gabriel Valley, including Monterey Park. Park, where she has been more than a three-decade resident. She's the former mayor of, longtime council member of Monterey Park, and in fact, her, her husband, Mike Eng, succeeded her as mayor of Monterey Park. Congress member, thank you very much for being with us today. We appreciate it. And first of all, our, our hearts go out to the community where you live and that you've represented for so very long. Can you give us a sense of, of how Monterey Park is waking up today? Well, it's been a rough 24 hours. The community is still reeling. Yesterday morning, we woke up to the news that 10 people had been shot dead and 10 more were in the hospital due to this shooter. But what really terrified people was the fact that this shooter was still out there. And they were worried and anxiety-filled about whether they should go to events, especially since there were so many Lunar New Year Events, but they were worried about fundamental things such as whether they should send their kids to school. So um, it was with great relief that finally at 5 p.m. yesterday, uh, we had a press conference where Sheriff Luna announced that the shooter had been found uh, by the Torrance Police Department and shot himself dead. So I made it a point to tell the community, you are safe. There is no active shooter, and please uh, go back to uh, what you were doing and your Lunar New Year celebrations. It, it's understandable that the city canceled yesterday's second day of Lunar New Year festivities out of respect for the dead and the injured, as well as out of security concerns with the shooter at that point outstanding. But, you know, your sense of that and what that means, because this is not only a big deal for Monterey Park, but the Lunar New Year festivities that are put on there are a regional draw. Yes, um, we have the biggest Lunar New Year celebration, and it was on hiatus for three years because of COVID. 
So people were really looking forward to this. They were so joyous and enthusiastic. We had our opening ceremony only a block away from where the shooting took place and only hours earlier. So uh, it was indeed such a double shock, actually, uh, that this happened at this particular time when people were looking forward to going back to normalcy. And this should have been the highlight of their year because uh, Lunar New Year is indeed the highlight uh, of holidays for Asian Pacific Islanders here, but also for Asians around the world. We're talking with member of Congress Judy Chu, who for many years has represented the community of Monterey Park, uh, both as a member of the city council and former mayor, and then in Congress, representing a district which includes Monterey Park and significant communities of Chinese American immigrants and uh, subsequent generations as well. Uh, Congress member, can you speak a bit to... Um, even going into this, some of the concerns that members of the community have had about the targeting of Asian Americans, and then you have an event like this happening. It was uncertain whether this was a racially based attack. Um, can you speak to how this sort of fit into that and the even greater fears it might have raised? Well, an added factor to this is that our feelings are very raw because of three years of anti-Asian hate crimes and incidents due to people blaming Asians for COVID-19. And uh, we have become very sensitive to acts of violence. Uh, and in fact, the the number of assaults that occurred at, at a certain point in time uh, were so numerous that many of us uh, would ask ourselves before we walked on the sidewalk, will I be next? So to have this kind of thing happen, I know that when I first heard of the shooting, I actually immediately thought that this might have been an anti-Asian hate crime. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't, but it doesn't make the horrific nature of this act any less terrifying. We're talking with uh, Representative Judy Chu, member of Congress, representing Monterey Park and surrounding communities. Can you share a bit about the importance of these dance studios um, for uh, a portion of uh, the Asian American communities um, of Alhambra and Monterey Park and surrounding communities? What important social function do they serve? Well, these are the two most prominent dance studios uh, in the San Gabriel Valley, and uh, they are frequented by many Asian immigrants. You know, they come here uh, and settle into a new life. Uh, they uh, sometimes have very hard lives, but they are able to let the steam out by going to these ballroom dance studios, and they find companionship there. They are able to enjoy themselves. They uh, get good exercise. So, yes, these studios are very popular, especially for the older generation. Let's talk a bit to the unknown motive in, in this attack. There's a lot of speculation about um, whether this was a domestic matter or, or, or what the issues that were involved. And you know, what would you say to people as, as right now there is much speculation, but uh, those doing the investigating are still trying to piece this together? Well, I have been uh, looking at the 
uh, the news reports, and there has been some revelation, which is that this gentleman frequented these two studios quite uh, often and that he fancied himself to even be uh, a dance instructor uh, because he would offer free lessons. He met his wife there, and um, uh, what she said was that uh, he would get angry and hostile if she didn't follow a dance step right. So he ultimately divorced her in 2005. Uh, There's some speculation that uh, he went to these two studios because he was looking for her. All right. And uh, do we know anything about uh, his ex-wife's whereabouts? Uh, No, but, um, uh, well, she was well enough to to give a quote, so I I assume she was not hurt. So she was not there or or was not injured during during this event. And Monterey Park, now, the name of the city is known internationally for this terrible incident. Of course, the community is very well known uh, throughout the Asian world. But, um, you know, what would you say about the importance of Monterey Park um, reestablishing itself, its values, what the city stands for in the wake of this? Now we have to begin the process of healing. You know, Monterey Park is a wonderful city. It's a great city to raise your kids. It's a, a city where the quality of life is very high. There's a park within a mile of every home. Uh, and it's a city that has a 65% Asian population. Uh, so this city celebrates its diversity, which is why we had such a big Lunar New Year celebration. But this shooting has really shaken everybody up. And now we have to begin the process of recovery, of healing. Uh, we need to make sure that the victims and the victims' families Uh, are given every resource that they can, but we also have to come together as a community uh, to move forward and make sure that everybody feels safe. Now, I've lived in the city for 37 years. I was its mayor and city council member, and I know that the city is resilient and that we can get through this. We are stronger when we work together. Thank you so much, Congressmember. We appreciate it very much. Judy Chu with us on Air Talk, and uh, we wish you well. Spoke with Judy Chu just a few minutes before air today. And uh, the, anybody who knows the community of Monterey Park, you have a sense of you know, what what a sense of culture and place there is there. My wife uh, grew up her whole childhood in, in Monterey Park and went through the schools there and in Alhambra. And I would go daily to pick up our son as my wife's parents uh, took care of him every weekday when he was growing up. It's It's a place to think of this city going through the trauma of this event is is very difficult uh, and undoubtedly they will in time show the resilience that that uh, is there in Monterey Park but nonetheless just very very uh, difficult at this point. Joining us now is KPCC LAist reporter Jackie Orchard uh, who was there in Alhambra talking with people. Jackie thank you for being with us. Uh, just share some of the conversations that you had when you were out there? Absolutely. Um, So I went early in the morning around 8 a.m. and I went to Alhambra True Light Presbyterian Church, which is actually just around the corner from the Lai Lai Ballroom, which is that suspected second location of the shooter. 
Um, when I went to Lila Ballroom, it was really just a closed down building. There was a sign in the window that said closed due to the tragedy. There was a lot of press there, but I, I didn't see any people or nothing really going on there. So I went to the church around the corner and I spoke with some of the community members who were filing into the church and, and they were wearing a lot of the traditional silk garb, celebrating the Lunar Festival, a lot of people wearing red, having those red envelopes. Um, but there was definitely kind of a, a dark shadow cast over everyone. People were more quiet. And I was able to speak with the pastor, Pastor Mark Shen. He's the interim pastor for the Cantonese congregation. Um, and when I caught him, he was just finishing up the Cantonese service. And he was kind enough to speak with me in one of the quiet rooms inside the church. Um, and I'm actually the person who told him about the tragedy. He hadn't heard the news yet. Oh my. Um, and he was able to give me, yeah, he was able to give me a lot of background context about the Lunar New Year and, and why this is such a shocking time for this to happen. Wow. Um, and that must have been difficult for him to, to hear that and get his head around that as you delivered the terrible news. Um, what was your sense being there? Because we had one of the things that we heard was that people were showing up for the festivities just as the pastor was unaware. They, too, were not aware of the attack the night before, nor that the events for Lunar New Year were canceled on Sunday. Did you run into people who were arriving for things? Oh, yes. Um, I spoke with several families. Um, one person was aware. She was a choir member. And um, she actually approached me and she said, you know, I found out this morning I live in Monterey Park and my car was parked on the street. So when I went to go get into my car to come to service, I looked up and saw all these helicopters and ambulances and everything was blocked off. And, and that's when she heard the news. And so a lot of people were late to the service because they live in Monterey Park and there were lots of road closures and things that they had to work around. She also mentioned that all the choir members were kind of in a network calling each other, making sure everyone was okay because so many of the community members do live in Monterey Park. Yeah. Jackie, anything to add of your experience talking with people yesterday before we let you go? Um, I would just say that the family members that I spoke to, they said that they are feeling a little hesitant to be out on the streets partying or going, obviously, dancing or things like that. But they do still plan to celebrate in their own way privately and just be with family during this time. Jackie, thanks so much. We appreciate it. That's KPCC LAist reporter Jackie Orchard. Her daily beat is on California Community Colleges, but yesterday uh, pressed into reporting from the mass shooting in Monterey Park, and she was in Alhambra nearby where that second uh, ballroom dance studio uh, was believed to be linked uh, to the suspect in the first mass shooting in Monterey Park. We're going to continue with additional guests coming right up. Uh, Also want to let you know if you're having a little trouble picking up KPCC in the greater Los Angeles area on your radio, we have lost connection with our Mount Wilson transmitter. So we are broadcasting from our backup transmitter atop Flint Peak. It's a lower altitude, so it does change the pattern of our radio service. So if you're having a little trouble picking us up, that's the reason why we're en route to the top of Mount Wilson to try and resolve the issue and and find out what 
what the technical problem is, but thank you. And if you are having trouble listening to us on the radio because of us being on that backup transmitter, remember, you can always listen on the KPCC app on your smartphone or tell your smart speaker to play KPCC or visit kpcc.org. We'll be back in one minute. We're talking about Monterey Park just about 36 hours after the mass shooting at a ballroom dance studio in Monterey Park. Ten people killed, ten others injured, and the suspected uh, gunman uh, took his own life. Uh, in uh, the van uh, with which he was identified, that incident unfolded in Torrance as uh, sheriff's deputies and officers were approaching that vehicle after it was pinned in. We're getting a sense of Monterey Park, also how Chinese language media is covering the events of the past 36 hours. And with that in mind, I invited our former senior producer of AirTalk, Fiona Ng, to join me because w- one of the many things that Fiona brought in her leadership of AirTalk was she's very plugged into Chinese language media and would always be able in our editorial meetings to tell us about some of the very interesting work that was being done there. And I knew that Fiona would have uh, things to say. She grew up uh, in the Alhambra area, has been a resident there a long time. Fiona, thanks. Thanks very much. First of all, just your sense of, of the effect of this on the on the Chinese-American suburban San Gabriel Valley. You know what, Larry? Um, thank you for having me, first of all. I think, like, um, we're all feeling, you know, that feeling that people get when this kind of tragedies happened in your community. It really never happens in Monterey Park, in Alhambra, in San Gabriel Valley. And I think, like, I have been, you know, talking to a lot of my friends and family that live in the area, and it's a complete shock. And I think we're all trying to figure out ways to kind of find our bearing. And, of course, this happened, you know, the night before Chinese New Year. This is a time where family gather for their dinner, or to be together, this is the night to do that. So I think, um, you know, we're definitely kind of, you know, just rolling with the punches right now, to be honest. You were out uh, just as a concerned citizen on the street. You weren't working yesterday, but um, just share with us some of the conversations you were having with people when you were you were out and about in Alhambra. Uh, Monterey Park. Or Monterey Park. Excuse yeah, me. so, yeah, I was there pretty early at about 8.30, 9 a.m. I just really just wanted to go and see what happened. You know, um, the dance studio is next to a supermarket that actually my mom goes to every week. Um, It's a very, you know, well-known kind of square. Um, And the people that I talked to, you know, of course, the uh, Lunar New Year Festival was closed down. I was able to just chat with, you know, a bunch of shop owners and also vendors there. And from what I understand, they told me that, you know, they had just kind of found out that morning, yesterday morning. And they were, you know, the vendor was packing stuff up, you know, leaving the area. And you know, a lot of the um, the shop owners that I was able to talk to were really processing the news themselves. But I also talked to a couple neighbors, a couple community, longtime Monterey Park residents. And one of them, they lived, um, they lived, uh, right behind the studios. There's a little alleyway and they were able to just give me a little bit of a sense that, you know, just, you know, what the dance studio was about. They said that, um, you know, it's for all ages, uh, but mostly older, 
Chinese people, middle aged and older Chinese people would go. And I was reading um, some of the news that uh, is being reported by the Chinese press. Um, one of the newspaper was able to get in touch with somebody that was part of the star dance ballroom scene. They have a WeChat group, which is very common. Um, that was built around this studio and the events that was happening. And, you know, apparently on the night of the shooting, they had, of course, we know, um, a New Year celebration that was uh, scheduled from 8.30 to 12.30 a.m. And they were, they had dances, they had, you know, sweepstakes, games and so forth. And, um, yeah, and, and. And you know, according to this to to this resident, she you know she was just telling me that it's usually really mellow, it's usually really peaceful. They were completely shocked that happened, and what kind of like kind of tipped them to something was wrong was the helicopters that were flying overhead. And the last thing they could have possibly expected, as you say, you know, here's this low crime community. Things like this don't happen in Monterey Park, and then something uh, shocking of this scale. You were mentioning Fiona also the vendors. Um, and, you know, easy for them to get lost because the details are so horrifying, the loss of life and the injuries. Um, but you also had people showing up for the Lunar New Year events and you think of all the food and all the things. You know, these are typically small business people who, you know, you think about not just um, the traumatic experience, but the economic impact. I mean, it, all the things we don't necessarily think of at multiple layers that come into play after something like this. I think you're absolutely right. You know, the fender that I was talking with, you know. They understand, but I can also, you know, but they, they told me that they were preparing for, uh, for, for the festival for about a, a week, brought out all the inventory. They were based in, um, uh, Orange County and, but they're really, you know, they understand the, the gravity of what's happening, of yeah, course. They, you, know? you couldn't have it yesterday. There's just no way out of respect for the victims and, and also who's in a mood to go out and, and celebrate at a time like that. Also, yeah, you know, the interesting thing was, um, you know, it was early in the morning when I was out, out there. And a few people that I actually talked to, they were not from Monterey Park. They were, um, you know, uh, Chinese people that were from other parts of the states coming to Monterey Park to celebrate with their family. And they told me they were looking forward to attending the Lunar Festival because wherever they are, they really don't have this kind of scale of celebration in their cities. Uh, Fiona, I'm going to let you go. Thanks. Anything notable about Chinese language media that they have been reporting on this? I thought that they um, might because oftentimes they don't have the language barrier that English language media will often have. Yeah. I think like what uh, really struck me, and I just need to give props to uh, the Chinese language media, is how quickly they were able to get on top of the story. You know, I think I started uh, seeing articles like maybe an hour or so after, but they were really able to also kind of tap into the social network, right? We're talking about WeChat and, you know, find out about that kind of information, finding people that were at the scene, getting certain information that I think like was much easier for them because they were so clued in.
Fiona, thanks very much. Thank, Thank you, you for coming in. Fiona Ng, for many years, the senior producer of AirTalk and coming in based on her experiences, being a longtime member of, of the community that's so affected here, talking with people yesterday out on the streets and monitoring Spanish language media. Uh, and I mentioned sometimes the language limitations of English language media. Thankfully, at KPCC in LA, we have multilingual reporters who are able to get these important stories. And joining us now is Josie Wong, KPCC LAS reporter who covers Asian American communities. Josie, thank you for for joining us. Share with us at this point what aspects of this story you're most closely pursuing. Uh, today, I'll be working with my colleague over at LAS, Jessica Ovi, on you know finding more about the identities of the victims. Yesterday, uh, last evening, they were not providing those names pending notification of family and um, uh, uh, exams by the coroner. But um, as of this morning, I understand that two people, two people's names have been released, two women in their 60s. And as you know, Fiona was mentioning earlier that uh, the ballroom dance studio did draw uh, all ages, but it was especially popular, uh, uh, an especially popular fixture for um, Asian immigrants from mostly China, but also, you know, Taiwan and Vietnam. Um, it was a, uh, it was a place for them to go learn the cha-cha and the waltz and, um, you know, compete. And it was actually, um, you know, I think there was a documentary called Walk uh, Cha-Cha that was made about the ballroom dance uh, culture in the San Gabriel Valley, which is really rich because even though these folks, you know, spoke different native tongues, they were all able to communicate over their love of dance. Josie, you were there at Star Dance Studio. Just give us a sense of the scene, what what it looked like in the aftermath of this. So in the morning, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, were just waking up to the news that the 10 people had been fatally shot. And so folks were coming down to the uh, downtown area near the studio to do their business. I met this one woman, Hong Liu. She had come down to do grocery shopping when she saw the absolute crush of police vehicles and news crews, just something you don't see in uh, Monterey Park. Be um, normally pretty sleepy on a Sunday morning. And there were also these tele- TV helicopters circling up ahead. And she knew something was up, but then she learned that a manhunt was still underway. This was around 8.30 or so. And so she panicked and told me she was going to go home right away because she said it was very scary. And that was a phrase I heard over from folks over and over from folks who were just, you know, that was the word to describe it. It's so like unbelievable and, and terrifying. Not everybody, you know, panicked the way she did. I met, um, you know, uh, another couple who was, uh, who are from Arcadia, but they were in uh, Monterey Park to look at a used car and they said they weren't scared for themselves and um, they weren't worried about being targeted even though you know a hate crime was still considered as a possible motive earlier in the day but they still felt like they couldn't celebrate New Year not after what happened to so many people you know not just 10 10 people killed it but 10 injured so um yeah it was a mix of mix of folks just um feeling very somber and others fear fearing um feeling absolute fear
One of the things, Josie, that we've been talking about is the nature of Monterey Park, um, the, the different um, countries of origin for people that live there, the various communities within the larger community that have developed uh, in Monterey Park over the period where it's been a, a center of immigration in Southern California. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit uh, uh, about that. I I feel fortunate to have had um, some exposure to that as my wife is from Monterey Park, and I've spent considerable time there, but it it's a truly unique community. Yes, it's, you know, it's very well known, of course, in the LA area for its great Asian food, particularly the Chinese cuisine and a lot of great shops there, but it's already also like a very storied place, you know, in Asian American culture, because it's one of the first cities in the U.S. to become majority Asian. Right now, it's two-thirds Asian, and you know, as a result, it has a bunch of monikers, you know, academics call it the first suburban Chinatown. And, you know, I, I grew up on the East Coast in the 80s and 90s, not from California. And even I knew about Monterey Park, <laughs> you know, over there, yeah. you know, um, because it was known at that time um, in some some corners as Little Taipei, because it not only drew a lot of Chinese people, but many of the first folks to settle there from Asia were from Taiwan. And my Taiwanese American parents read the Chinese language daily printed in the U.S. And there was always news coming out of Monterey Park. You know, the city today, I I would still say is very in a very important landing spot for immigrants from you know China and also Southeast Asia. It's also a place where a lot of Asian American politicians get their start. For instance, Congress member Judy Chu, who you interviewed this morning, she has been this, um, you know, leader in the House, right? Everybody, uh, she she's known at a national level for addressing the surge in anti-Asian violence during the pandemic. And she got her start as, you know, a city council member um, in Monterey Park. She used to be the mayor, actually. Mm-hmm. And yesterday you saw her in front of City Hall again, addressing the public, you know, after the suspect had been identified, telling them not to worry because some folks were, were, were very concerned earlier in the day about, the suspect being loose and telling them, telling them you need to feel safe, you know, to go about, you know, continue to enjoy um, Lunar New Year, which goes on for a couple more weeks. I was very impressed with the Congress member and and um, you know she was very front and center at the news conferences yesterday. And it's very difficult circumstance uh, with a tragic thing. Where, and where you're a longtime resident and former leader directly in that community, still representing it, tough to to get up there and to speak to it. And I thought she was she was very impressive. Josie, thank you so much. You were first on scene for us at LAist and and KPCC, and I know you're continuing to report on this. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Larry. Appreciate it. That's KPECC LAist reporter covering Asian American communities, Josie Wong. Also with us is Sharon Kwan, who is with the Yellow Chair Collective, a psychotherapy group that works with members of the AAPI community. Sharon Kwan, thank you very much for for joining us. I want to begin with uh, a message that I got from one of our listeners, Alan, in West LA, who said, I used to be the director of a council center in Alhambra and for that community to articulate their trauma is quite difficult culturally and I wonder Sharon if you could you could speak to that point hi yes thank you so much for having me um, I agree with that I think um, Asian Americans in particular we really struggle with identifying our feelings expressing them um, it's a lot easier for us to kind of pull things in. Um, we don't want to rock the boat. And so I think 
in times like this, um, you know, it's really hard for us to convey how we're actually feeling. I think a lot of times we tend to um, stuff our feelings down or, um, you know, kind of minimize or dismiss them. And so I think in times like this, being able to talk to others um, going through a similar experience is even more important. Now, uh, the community I know is um, providing resources for residents of of uh, Monterey Park to be able to talk with someone and and to be able to speak about the trauma of this experience. What sorts of things can be done to try and encourage people not to just sort of grit through it, but but to um, connect with someone and to talk openly about their feelings? Yeah, I think it's really important to um, note that there are a lot of resources available in um, various languages. Um, you know, the city of Alhambra is also very diverse, Monterey Park as well. Um, and right now there's a Survivors Resource Center um, available at Monterey Park's Lang- Langley Senior Center that offers psychology and legal assistance. Um, and we, you know, I know that this event impacted a lot of um, older Asian Americans and I think for them there's even more of a barrier in terms of seeking help and maybe um, you know their children or family members can kind of encourage them to seek mental health Um, and and if for older folks that have Medicare or Medi-Cal oftentimes they can kind of go to a county agency that can provide these services for free so Um, It's really all about just kind of looking for the resources that are out there. Sharon, thank you. We appreciate your being with us today. Thank you so much. That's Sharon Kwan, who is um, um, a um, clinical social worker and therapist at Yellow Chair Collective Psychotherapy Group uh, in Southern California that works with the uh, Asian American Pacific Islander community. Coming up, we turn our attention to substitute teachers. You've probably heard there is a significant shortage of substitutes. Part of that is the ripple effect from the shortage of teachers overall. I'd love to hear from you if you are a substitute teacher please share with me your experiences the pros the cons what's involved in the licensing process and i'd love to hear from listeners the best experience and the worst you ever had with a substitute teacher when you were in school we're at 866-893-5722 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at kpcc.org We'll be back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. In case you just joined us and you're having a little trouble picking up our over-the-air signal, our transmitter on Mont Wilson is down right now. We're operating through our backup transmitter on Flint Peak. So that has a different signal pattern, and there's some areas that you may be shadowed by the mountains because of that and not able to pick us up very well. If that's the case, you're not hearing our 89.3 signal particularly well, you can move over uh, to uh, listen on the app. 
your smartphone app, KPCC. Uh, also, we're available to tell your smart speaker to play KPCC, or you can use your laptop or your phone at kpcc.org. We turn our attention now to substitute teachers and the dramatic shortage the schools are dealing with right now, causing in some cases administrators to have to go back into the classroom to uh, teach when uh, when the regular teachers are out sick. This is a significant problem that many uh, districts are facing. And with us is Diana Lambert, senior writer at EdSource, where she covers teachers uh, and the profession. Diana, thank you so much. Um, how bad a shortage is this compared to historical patterns? Well, good morning, Larry. First, I want to say thanks for having me on. But uh, the pattern is is pretty dire. Uh, you know, it's a great job market for substitute teachers right now. There are plenty of jobs available and pay has gone up in most districts because of the shortages. And um, so this has obviously pressed um, all kinds of different people into it. How rigorous is the certification process for substitutes? Because I know in California, they did relax that process to try and attract more subs. They have relaxed it. They've done several things to relax it. Last year in the state budget, they extended the number of days a substitute can teach. Generally, they can only teach in one classroom for 30 days at a time. And now that they can do that for 60 days. They also have waived the need to prove that you have the basic skills required, which generally requires a test or proof that you've taken certain coursework. So until July 1st of next year, you don't have to do that. So what you have to do is you have to complete an application that shows you have a bachelor's degree. Generally, that includes your transcripts. You have to get fingerprinted. And other than that, you just play your $100 application fee, and that does it. And the, the live scan, which is the fingerprint, generally costs about $49. All right. And I didn't hear the CBEST in there. Did you say the CBEST has to be passed or not? It, it's it's been waived it's waived okay it's waived just through actually that is just waived through this summer okay july 1st because so that's sort of the summer. basic that's sort of the, i think of the sea best is just showing you have enough sort of rudimentary knowledge of right. things that you can get up in a classroom and not be completely uninformed um so all right so that's waived through the summer july 1st okay mm-hmm. let's talk with jared in woodland hills jared i understand you've been a substitute teacher for 24 years congratulations thank you larry it's good to be with you again yes i have and uh, um, you're with la unified yeah what's your favorite part of it well absolutely in, in interacting with uh, the motivated uh, kids which tend to be uh, typically my 10th 11th and 12th graders and really getting a sense of being able to share the lesson plan, interact, and um, and be of some positive influence, uh, keeping in mind I'm only there for a day or two. Um, and really the class organization is really reliant upon whatever the primary teacher leaves behind as a lesson plan, and uh, and that's wonderful to teach from that. And, of course, you can imagine other situations where it's an emergency, teacher doesn't have the lesson plan, and um, the classroom could theoretically go into disarray. Um, But over the years and years and years of experience, you have to have a game plan and establish how to have classroom management, show respect immediately to the students, garner that respect, and basically checkmate their teenage cynicism as quickly as possible so that you can get the lesson, lesson plan across, you know. 
Yeah, you, you don't want to show that weakness uh, or deer in the headlights look, I'm sure, when you arrive in the class. When when I was a kid, typically the substitutes babysat us. I mean, that was, that was you know, a very different era, though. Today, because of standardized testing and the ambitious goals that the teachers and classes have, I, I would assume that there's really not that luxury just to babysit. You've ideally got to be teaching every day. And, and, and you know, Larry, you bring up an amazing point, uh, and that's precisely why I, I enjoy this profession is because I don't want to babysit. I, I, I prefer a well-articulated lesson plan, and it's fascinating for me as a teacher, whether it's history, English, mathematics, geometry, what have you, where I can go in and cogently present a lesson plan. You're absolutely right, because um, I'm there to instruct, and... Uh, I remember my substitutes when I went to Granada Hills High School. Some of them just went behind a magazine and said, Larry, copy chapter five. And they (laughs) disappear as opposed to to myself where I'm standing up, I'm engaged, I'm walking around. And, um, of course, with the advent of devices, everyone has 40,000 devices. That's another hurdle that has to also be checkmated. But it, it can't be done in such a way, at least in my experience, that is disrespectful. It only has to be respect. Hey, would you mind putting that away, bud? Yeah. We're looking at this lesson plan together, you know. Uh, and uh, I think by establishing that right away, we all feel comfortable, and then I can get the educational aspect across. Jared, I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. A substitute teacher in L.A. Unified for 24 years joining us on Air Talk. Franklin Glassell Park said, I had a substitute teacher in junior high in the late 80s who was teaching science. Someone talked back to him. He locked the door and told us, one day I'm going to get you kids. It was terrifying. That's Frank in Glassell Park. Yes, I bet it was. Wow. Um, I had I had a substitute one time absolutely lose his cool and just start yelling at the class. And I have to say, even as a kid, I kind of understood it. I, it was, he got pushed um, verbally, and I, I, I wasn't surprised, even though he wasn't supposed to do that. When we come back, we'll talk with Sophia, who's the substitute teacher in Orange County, can talk about her experience. And also with us is Diana Lambert, senior writer at uh, the news site Ed Source. I'd like to hear from you. If you're a substitute teacher, what's the good and the bad of the profession? And I'd also like to hear if you have a particularly good story about something that happened when you were a student uh, and you had a substitute. That would be great as well. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us. Coming up next hour, we'll take a look a year in at SB9, the bill that was designed to allow people to subdivide their properties, put duplexes on them. A new study that's come out says, even though it's an early return in the first year, there's not been much of that additional unit construction. We'll talk about what the impediments to that are. That's coming up next hour right here on Air Talk. Right now, our focus is on the profession of substitute teaching and the challenge in having enough subs to be able to serve 
where all the openings are in public schools. We're talking with Diana Lambert, who's written about this for EdSource, where she's senior writer. Also with us is Sophia Brown, a substitute teacher who works in Orange County. Sophia, thank you very much for being with us. I understand you're fairly new to being a substitute. Is that correct? Sophia, you there? Okay, we'll try and get you. Hello, can you hear me now? Yeah, now we got you. Yeah. Hi, good morning. I understand you're fairly new to this. I am. I just um, got my, finished my teaching credential program in spring of 2022. So fairly new at this. All right. Well, we'll share with us uh, from a newcomer's perspective to this work, what it's like. Has there been something that's been particularly surprising that you felt you weren't necessarily prepared for? So I've been substituting for about two years now. I substituted um, right after I graduated with my bachelor's degree and throughout my credential program, I was substituting. And I think for me, the most difficult part or the thing I had trouble adjusting to was um, just being in a different classroom every day. And you have to quickly um, learn each classroom's unique routines and procedures that to them, it's normal every day they do those same things. But for me, it's it's brand new. Every time I walk into a classroom, I have to sort of um, become an expert in the classroom's procedures and norms. And do students often try and test you uh, in terms of your control of the class? I think um, most of the time I'm a substitute at elementary school. So I feel like at that level, I don't feel that as much. But when sometimes I, I get called to go to the middle schools, I think because I'm a newer teacher, Sometimes they test um, how much, you know, they can get away with or maybe not respect me as much as their regular teacher. And how do you handle kids who are engaging in significant misbehavior that maybe uh, the regular teacher every day has figured out uh, techniques to be able to deal with, but you're coming in, you know, unaware of that? How, How do you deal with that? Um, typically teachers are pretty good about leaving notes about specific students that may have, um, difficulties with something in the classroom or they need extra support, um, and stuff like that. So you come in and you, you're most of the time you're prepared with those things. But what I find works best for me and what I like to do whenever I go into a new classroom is start building the relationship as soon as I walk in the door. So Something I like to do is um, tell them about myself and my interests and hobbies. And then I ask the students, is there anything you want to know about me or about like my life or anything? And a lot of the times they have pretty interesting questions. And I find that after they get to know me a little bit, they respect me and the day goes a lot smoother. We're talking with Sophia Brown, a substitute teacher in Orange County Schools. Julie in Ojai said, my husband was a substitute teacher for many years. He found the kids to be completely different from when he was a kid. He was at a loss at how to handle certain situations that came up. John in Echo Park says, I'm a substitute teacher in Los Angeles, been doing it for the past eight years. I started when I was 31 after transitioning from an office job. I'm getting a lot of calls recently because there's more opportunity. 
I work with middle school kids who like to test me, but I can handle it. That's John in Echo Park. Uh, Connie in Los Feliz says, My husband has been a substitute with LA Unified for 20-something years, and he has a special ed teaching credential. He's been doing it very little this year because of the lack of COVID precautions. That's Connie in Los Feliz. You can weigh in on this, The Life of a Substitute Teacher at 866-893-5722, or you can email your input at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Sophia, uh, in substituting in Orange County, are do you work in a variety of socioeconomic communities? I do. And and do you see differences in um, how the schools are administered or things that are available to the students based on that? Because you get these side by side comparisons that a lot of other people wouldn't. Could you repeat that one more time? Yeah, sure. Do you see going to different socioeconomic communities significant differences in what's available for the students or how the schools are administered? Um, I can only speak to my experience working in um, um, Orange County, but I feel like comparing my education um, to the school that I'm substituting or the district I'm substituting in now, I can tell a lot of the differences in what is available to students and what other schools may have. Um, There's a lot of variety. Like some schools offer free and reduced lunch to students, iPads. Some students have Chromebooks. Other students or other schools don't have access to those things. All right. Sophia Brown is the substitute teacher in Orange County joining us on AirTalk. Diana Lambert of EdSource, what are some of the things being talked about to try and encourage more substitute teachers or or ways to ease the process of certifying them to substitute? Well, at the district level, there have been many campaigns to encourage parents to substitute. They call them their sense of community, and they've increased the daily pay substantially at some districts and only temporarily at other districts to stay competitive with their neighbors. All right. Uh, And and so um, does that appear to be attracting more people to the positions, or uh, is there any way to tell at this point? Well, I, you know, there's no way to really tell at this point, but I haven't heard as much about it lately as I used to. So I, I believe that the severe shortage that we saw just after the pandemic, when many substitutes just did not return, uh, is easing a bit. Now, it's, there's, it's still a very competitive market, but not as dire as it was when it was closing schools at some points because there just weren't enough teachers and substitutes. Alex emails us, I recently started substituting in Orange County. The process, while it took a couple months, was fairly easy. I'm a recent college grad. I'm looking for career paths. I completed a series of standardized tests, including the CBEST, and went through background checks. I now can pick and choose my shifts, and I'm amazed at how rewarding the experience has been so far. I think for anyone with an interest in education, substituting is a good way to dip your toe. Uh, Arlene tweets at AirTalk, I don't remember any of my substitute teachers. I think that's a good thing. They must have done a good job. Arlene, thank you so much. One of my more memorable uh, experiences with a substitute when I was at LeConte Junior High in Hollywood, 
uh, our substitute, uh, we were seeing a, a nature movie in class that day, and all the students were were demanding that she allow it to be shown backwards, and she finally caved in, and it was my job to thread the projector and to show the film. So then I had to figure out, how do I show the movie backwards? I have all this pressure doing it. We figured it out. Uh, Patricia and Chino says, I'm a retired teacher, and two years after I retired, I started subbing. I love it. I substituted two schools, and because I'm a seasoned teacher, I enjoy it a lot. Patricia, thank you so much. Our thanks to Diana Lambert of EdSource and Sophia Brown, a substitute teacher in Orange County. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Just want to let you know right after this hour, it's NPR's Here and Now. And our Josie Wong, who was with us last hour talking about the mass shooting in Monterey Park, will be on the national program Here and Now. She'll be back on air coming up in the 11 o'clock hour Here and Now, right here on KPCC. But we have to turn our attention now to the one-year mark since the implementation of Senate Bill 9 in California. The bill was designed to create more multi-unit housing on single-family lots. It enabled people to subdivide their lot in two and also ease the way for the construction of duplexes. UC Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation has done a one-year-in study of what's happened with SB9 and concludes that very little development has occurred as a result of it. Joining us to share that conclusion is UC Berkeley's Turner Center Policy Director, David Garcia. David, thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Though I know you looked at a number of cities where it was anticipated that SB9 would most come into play. What did you specifically find? Yeah, so we looked at 13 cities statewide to really understand how Senate Bill 9 has been playing out on the ground. And uh, really, everywhere you look, it's been pretty sparse. Development in most places is almost non-existent. So, for example, the city of Los Angeles, uh, they told us that they had 211 applications um, in 2022 for Senate Bill 9 uh, homes. And uh, to put that in context, uh, you know, the year prior, the city permitted 20,000 new homes. And so it's really a minuscule number. In some places, it's really non-existent. The city of Anaheim told us they had one application. The city of Long Beach told us they had just one application. Bakersfield had zero. Um, And and so it's been, um, I mean, pretty, pretty non-existent everywhere you look. And do you know how many of those applications were to split the lot versus construct a duplex? Yeah, so we asked those two specific questions because the law allows the homeowner to do those exact two things, split their lot and then also to build up to two units on each of those lots. So we asked asked cities, you know, how many applications did you get just for lot splits? How many did you get for for units? And we saw um, kind of, it was kind of all over the place in the cities that we saw some activity. Uh, You know, lot splits were a little bit behind Um, the actual units that were being applied for. Um, But really, uh, it it depended on on the place. Uh, We we did see some more activity in more affluent communities. So we had had information from the cities of Danville and Saratoga 
in Northern California, which uh, have larger lots and um, higher home sales prices. And those places, relative to their population and to the numbers of units they usually permit per year, Center Blind looked like it was a bit more effective in those places. But again, overall, still pretty small numbers. And how does this relate to the construction of ADUs or what used to be called granny flats? Sometimes they're called casitas. They're they're a standalone mm-hmm. smaller property, often in back of the main house. Are, are applications for those up substantially? I know that's not under SB9, but, but I wonder yeah. about the appeal of that versus these SB9 duplexes and lot splits. Yeah, that's a really great question. And one of the things we tried to take a deep dive, dive on here in cities that have pretty significant ADU development, we thought they may also have significant interest in Cinnable 9 that actually turned out to not be the case. Uh, for example, the city of San Diego has permitted hundreds of ADUs over the last year. And in San Diego, they only had seven applications for, for Cinnable 9. And part of the reason why planners in, in San Diego and other cities told us is that, you know, it took several years of extra legislation from Sacramento to really get ADUs to work. And things like uh, capping impact fees, allowing for larger homes to be built using ADUs, all of these together. Parking. Yeah, it, it, parking too. So uh, all of these things have created conditions for ADUs to really thrive. Uh, we had, you know, virtually no ADUs being built before 2016. And after several rounds of state legislation, they make up almost a fifth of the new permitted units throughout the state. Is there also, um, is it easier to, to rent ADUs than it is to do duplexes? Or are there other advantages making it a more attractive proposition for the property owner? Yeah, so... A lot of, uh, there are a lot of incentives to doing ADUs that Senate 9 projects don't have yet. So, for example, um, I uh, don't have to pay as a homeowner as many fees as I would to build uh, a, an ADU as I would for a Senate 9 project. Uh, right now, a city can still charge really high fees, like the same fees that they would charge for a single family home for a Senate 9 project, whereas they cannot do the same thing for an ADU. Um, also, you, Part of the reason Senate 9 was passed was to facilitate more for sale homes, more, um, you know, more homeownership opportunities. And that's a bit more complex of a process to go through than, say, converting your garage into extra space. So, so there are some specific technical reasons why I think um, ADUs are more attractive, especially if the homeowner is just looking to create an, an extra unit. It makes a lot more sense to do an ADU right now than it does a Senate 9 project in most places. We're talking with UC Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation Policy Director, David Garcia. Uh, the center recently released a study on the impact of SB9. Now, the caveat is it's only been in force for a year, but it's found very few applications for splitting of single-family residential lots uh, or for construction of two units on each of the split properties uh, as well, neither one showing much appeal to this point. I'd love to hear from you if you have questions about it, what you think are some of the complexities. Maybe you've considered uh, constructing additional properties on your lot under SB9, but you found certain obstacles along the way. We would like to hear for, about those at 
893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. Also with us from California YIMBY, a pro-housing organization, Communications Director Matthew Lewis. Matthew, thank you for being with us. Um, what are your thoughts about, um, you know, is this too soon to get a decent snapshot or does this reveal some areas where you'd like to see tweaks to SB9? Well, first, thanks very much for having me on. And I want to commend the work of the Turner Center and my friend David Garcia for looking at this issue. Um, the Turner Center, I would say, is one of the top housing research organizations in the state of California. And really what what their findings are is, is really useful for everyone who's trying to understand what's happening with housing in the state of California. I, what I would say is there's two things. Yes, it's a little too soon. Um, it's only been a year. And, and let's remember that during this year, we had the, the very well-publicized increase in interest rates, which anyone who owns a home, the first thing they're going to know about rising interest rates is that it gets much harder to borrow. Um, and, of course, people looking for a home, it gets harder to buy. And so that rising interest rate environment overlaps with the time when you start, you would think you'd start to see people trying to do some more construction, and it's just not a very favorable moment to do so. I think that the deeper issue, though, that David kind of touched upon a little bit is, is really unpacking what happened with accessory dwelling units, which people also refer to as, as granny flats or casitas. It wasn't the first piece of legislation in 2016 that led to the boom in ADUs. And the reason was cities around the state, unfortunately, come up with all kinds of tricks and barriers to prevent the construction of housing that's needed. And this is why we have this relationship between the state legislature and our cities on housing it's, it's unnecessarily adversarial. You would hope that California cities want to play a very active role in ending the housing shortage and affordability crisis, um, and, and some of them are, are less willing to participate than others. And so what we saw with ADUs after the passage of the first uh, legislation in 2016 is really similar situation. Cities enacted all kinds of punitive fees and, and, and processes that made it incredibly difficult for homeowners who wanted to build an ADU to do so. It took another three or four rounds of legislation from the state legislature in Sacramento before it really sort of broke down those barriers. And as David pointed out, and as the Turner Center has also found, that led to a real boom in the construction of ADUs all over the state. So I think we're going to see a similar situation with SB9. Um, There are some important differences that I think David outlined here. You know, it's a difference between uh, uh, an, an ADU that's attached to the main house uh, legally as a matter of the title of the property, so it can't be severed or sold separately, versus a duplex under SB9 where you could, in fact, sell the unit if you wanted to. It's not clear what homeowners would choose to do in either case, but I think given what we know from the history of state housing legislation, the first thing that you can unfortunately predict is that cities will do everything they can to prevent it from working. And so what I hope will happen is that the legislature will take a look at the Turner Center's report, come back and say, okay, well, that was our first shot at allowing more duplexes in our state. And, and if that wasn't quite good enough, let's see what we can do to well, improve the law and make it easier for homeowners to do this. And in fairness to the cities that, that are trying to, uh, you know, hold back the, the, the water through the dam on this, they're representing constituents who were concerned about the character of their single family home neighborhoods being dramatically changed with, you know, no parking available on the street, greater congestion, 
potential for noise, renters coming in and out versus homeowners. So, I mean, there are things there that, you know, they're they're representing views of constituents in this process. Well, they're they're representing the views of a select group of constituents. There's there's a whole other area of research in housing policy that gets into who is actually represented when city councils deny housing. And it's definitely not a majority. There have been polls all over the state of California, including Southern California, that show that most residents of most cities in the state want to see more housing made legal and constructed, including in their neighborhoods. I think that the the thing that just on the ground is a little bit uh, puzzling to me as a homeowner in Berkeley is we've seen this boom in ADUs. And as a matter of the physical impact on a neighborhood, there's no difference between an ADU and a duplex under SB9. It's literally the same building that gets built. It's just a different legal structure. We haven't seen the kind of like horrible backlash and anger over ADUs saying, oh, this is destroying a neighborhood. This is taking away all the parking. And yet we were told the sky would fall if we allowed duplexes, which are functionally the same building type. Aren't they Aren't they generally larger, though, a duplex than an ADU? So that could have to do no, with... No, no, no they, they aren't. So cities tried to limit the size of ADUs, and the state legislature came back and said, you know what, that's also limiting their construction. And so we, we address that as well. So it's, it's really not a size issue. Um, and even still, it's just one home. So if a home is 1,200 square feet versus 1,400 square feet, is that really going to destroy the character of the neighborhood? I would say not. And as someone who lives in a neighborhood uh, where it was actually legal to build duplexes and fourplexes up until the 1970s, which is true all over places like Los Angeles, San Diego, Santa Barbara, uh, San Francisco, these these types of homes were legal, and they, in fact, already fill a lot of our urban neighborhoods. The thing is, is that you don't know it because it looks like a single-family home. And what I think a lot of people are reacting to is this visceral opposition to allowing more people to live in their neighborhood. And as a matter of public policy, that's really where the rubber meets the road. Are All we right. going to shut down our cities completely to newcomers? Because there are a lot of people who would like to do that. And I, as someone who thinks okay. we need to well, solve the housing shortage and affordability crisis, I think we should allow this type of gentle density. Okay. Hold, hold that thought. Matthew housing. Lewis with us, Director of Communications for California Yimby Pro Housing Organization. They supported the passage of Senate Bill 9 that we're discussing now. It's been in effect for one year. And according to UC Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation, there have been very few applications for developing projects under what SB 9 allows, which is the splitting of a single-family home residential lot in two and the construction of two units on each half uh, of that original parcel size. I'd like to hear from you, your thoughts about SB9. Again, if you are someone who contemplated uh, developing your property with what SB9 now allows for, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. One other factor, of course, that may well be coming into play inhibiting the development of properties under SB9 is the cost of construction right now. If you've had any work done on a house that you own, you know prices have shot through the roof for labor, 
for the materials that are involved. Getting certain materials with the supply chain crunch that we've had has been very challenging. So that, too, undoubtedly coming into play. We'll be back with more in just one minute. Apologize if you're having a difficult time listening to 89.3 KPCC. If you are, that's because we are on our backup transmitter atop Flint Peak, as opposed to uh, where we typically broadcast from on top of Mount Wilson, much higher elevation. That transmitter has apparently lost power. So we are on our backup transmitter on Flint Peak in the Verdugo Mountains. So if you are having trouble listening to us as a result of the uh, somewhat smaller listening uh, pattern of our radio waves right now, you can listen on your smartphone app, your KPCC app. You can also go to kpcc.org and listen to the stream there or tell your smart speaker to play KPCC. Thank you for your patience. Our chief engineer is uh, on his way to the top of Mount Wilson to get us back onto the main transmitter as soon as possible. We're talking about the impact of SB9. It was passed and implemented a year ago, and it provides for single-family housing lots to be divided in two and uh, up to two parcels on each half of that property to be developed. Sharing his thoughts on this is Chief Deputy Controller for the City of Los Angeles, Rick Cole. And in Rick's long uh, career in government, he has served as a mayor. He has been the top uh, administrative official for multiple Southern California cities. He's been a top advisor to mayors. Uh, Rick, it's good to have you with us again. You've seen the housing crisis in California from many different angles. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing a year in with SB9? Well, thanks, Larry, for inviting me to weigh in here. I think that um, taking a step back, it's important to look at the dynamic between the state and local governments. And you touched on it it's become a dysfunctional one in which cities have dug in their heels about adjusting to um, the need for additional housing and the state has intervened and cities protest against um, their intervention and resist um, mightily uh, the new laws and then it turns out that uh, the sky doesn't fall and uh, we get some new housing it takes a while um, but I, I wish that cities were more proactive at um, at solving the home, homelessness and housing crisis in our state uh, rather than uh, grudgingly reacting to state initiative. Um, they complain about uh, one size fits all, um, but uh, I think that cities should be taking the initiative. Some cities are. Uh, some cities are um, getting rid of parking minimums, which have long added uh, significant cost and and made us a more auto-dependent society. Uh, and that hits us in our pocketbook every time we uh, go to the gas station. Um, cities have that opportunity, and they should take advantage of it. Uh, let me share a, a listener comment because folks are, are weighing in on this. Uh, Janice in Woodland Hills emailed, I considered putting in an ADU, but the cost was astronomical and it would have resulted in a large increase in my property taxes. If we want to encourage homeowners to create additional housing on their properties, we need to provide better financial incentives. Rick, your thoughts about Janice's message? 
Well, it's a little bit um, self-serving because I'm building an ADU um, right now um, that I'm going to live in. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm not one to be able to say that I, I should get incentives. It is expensive. I've already paid $15,000 to the city of Pasadena for permits and, and more on the way. Um, so it's, it's a financial disincentive to do it. Plus, it's challenging to get financing. If you want to build a, a house, um, you can get a mortgage. But um, with an ADU, you've got to take out a, a second mortgage or, or refinance the, the whole property. Um, there needs to be uh, a, an easy way for homeowners to finance both uh, ADUs and SB9 um, duplexes. Those used to exist, um, those finance mechanisms. Uh, that's how neighborhoods like the one I live in have a variety of housing types, bungalow courts, duplexes, um, small apartment buildings. Um, but uh, that, that fell out of um, legality when, uh, when cities impose this one-size-fits-all of single-family zoning. Denise in Crenshaw Manor says, please cite some of the studies where people want increased density in their neighborhoods. That doesn't seem logical. Well, Denise, remember, these are people being asked in a survey, and people present themselves typically in surveys how they would like to be thought of or perceived. So what people really think and what is not necessarily going to be reflected in a survey. So you just you have to take that in mind. Uh, you know, obviously, people think there does need to be more housing as to whether people really believe it should be in their neighborhoods. Uh, who knows to what extent they're being honest uh, with a survey like that. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Rick, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? You look at younger people, um, they actually are not afraid of so-called density. In fact, the most lively and walkable neighborhoods are the ones that are commanding a price premium, particularly among younger people, they they want to have vibrant neighborhoods. They want to be able to walk uh, to get a cup of coffee or to uh, stop by the grocery store. Um, they're not in love living at the end of a cul-de-sac and having to drive everywhere um, to to meet their daily needs and, and to socialize. And yet, if you so, look at areas outside of metropolitan Los Angeles, Rick, you know that in those housing developments in the Inland Empire and the High Desert and all, those are full of young families who've done exactly that, have looked for those houses on the cul-de-sac and larger homes in which to raise their families. So, um, well, obviously, the market the market does reflect that interest. I, I don't buy that, Larry. Um, I think that for a lot of people, that's the only place they can afford to buy um, because they have to drive to qualify, and then they end up having to spend hours getting back to where the jobs are. I think there's a growing market for people who want to live close to their to their work, um, who want to live in vibrant neighborhoods, who want to raise their kids in diverse environments, uh, don't want to have to, to spend um, all of their time driving their kids to soccer practice and, and the elementary school, which is you know, out on the, on the freeway interchange. Um, I think that, that the world is changing, and I think that uh, older folks like you and me um, need to pay more attention to what actually younger voices are telling us.
Well, and I guess it's which younger voices and at what point in their life you're looking at. Are they young families? Are they young singles? Um, because obviously the perception of need will change depending on the demographic. Uh, Vincent Torrance says, I was at a meeting for our local homeowners association about the impact of SB9. The guest presenter was a council member giving some details. A large objection was that many existing parameters for buildings get pushed aside in these SB9 projects. And uh, David Garcia of UC Berkeley's Turner Center for Housing Innovation, can you speak to that? What what things did SB9 supersede when it came to zoning for these properties? Senate Bill 9 or that cities have to allow for a lot to be split if it's large enough and for up to two units to be built on either of the two new new lots. It can allow cities to cap the size of those units at just 800 square feet. Um, the only other thing that cities are required to do is to have uh, four-foot setbacks. Uh, other than that, cities uh, can be very uh, prescriptive when it comes to allowing or not allowing these projects. So there can be height limits imposed. There can be other design standards. Uh, so that, this is one of the issues that we point out in our report is that the, the language is very broad. And so cities have broad authority to interpret it how they would like. And so we've actually observed in previous research that a lot of cities are imposing standards that would make SB9 projects very difficult to work. So for example, one city required Senate Bill 9 homes to be built to lead platinum standards, um, which is a, the, the highest level of energy efficiency required of any building, uh, but did, did, did not require that of si- single family homes. And so um, on one hand, Yes, Senate Bill 9 does require cities to do a couple extra things that they would not have allowed before. But at the same time, cities still have wide latitude in deciding how to implement the law. David in Pasadena emailed, I have asked a city of Pasadena's planning department about splitting my 7,000 square foot parcel, but I was told very clearly it can't be split because it is the standard parcel size. Uh, that's very frustrating because on the block adjacent to me, there are small parcels less than half the size of mine. So how can those small parcels exist, but I'm not allowed to split my parcel? What exactly are the rules for splitting parcels? Matthew Lewis of California Yimby, can you fill us in on that? On the technical details of who is allowed to split a parcel, yeah, that's really going to be that's going to be a question for a, a planning department and somebody who does a, a site survey because every every lot that somebody lives on is going to be a little different. I, I can't sitting in my house here in Berkeley really say what the the factors are, but I do want to come back to something that um, that that Rick mentioned, and I want to push back a little bit on your characterization of people sort of moving out into these far flung areas because that's what they prefer. You know, if you really believe that markets are at least somewhat useful mechanisms for finding what things are are worth and what their price is, what you see is that the reason the housing is cheaper in the far-flung areas is because that's the only place we're actually building it. And the more dense urban areas are very high cost because they're in very high demand. A lot more people would love to not have to drive 30 minutes, an hour, two hours, three hours every day just to do their basic daily uh, tasks, they'd much rather live somewhere that's walkable or with transit. And we're really in a conflict here between this growing desire for a more walkable lifestyle um, and people who just don't want to share their neighborhoods with anybody. And I think that that's what we're up against. The no- what, what you're describing, Larry, is, is, is sort of a bit of an availability bias because 
it appears people are buying the house because that's what they've always dreamed of and what they really want. But the pricing suggests that what they really want is something that they don't have to drive everywhere to sort of live in. And so if we believe that the pricing is actually correct, if we believe that markets work, I think we have an obligation to allow more people to live in those areas because they're clearly creating demand for it. And SB9 is actually, just to be blunt about it, it's not going to solve all of those problems. This is just a duplex law. This only allows between two and four homes. We need a lot more than that to actually start to address this. But at the very least, SB9 creates a housing type that a lot of people do want, and it allows them to be built in areas that people would like to live. And so what I hope will happen, you know, the, the Senate pro tem, Tony Atkins, showed a lot of leadership on getting SB9 across the finish line. I think she was very pragmatic and practical in how she crafted this bill. And I think what we're learning from this Turner Center study that's so important is that there are things we can do to improve that law and make it okay. a little bit easier so that the folks who want to build this are allowed to do Jenny tweets at AirTalk, many jobs in L.A. County aren't long-term enough for living near work to be realistic for homeowners, especially ones with families or two adults who don't work in the same area. That makes more sense for young people and for renters. That's Jenny tweeting at AirTalk. Bobby in Pasadena emailed, honestly, ADUs aren't the solution to the housing crisis and only contribute a very, very small fraction. On top of that, most of these single-family areas already have impacted parking restrictions and can't support additional vehicles. I'm fine if they want to incentivize additional units, but they also need to fund public transportation in these areas where there's absolutely none. That's Bobby in Pasadena. Um, let's see. We have Kristen in Long Beach emailed us. We have a large lot uh, with our 1919 bungalow and space to build. Found we could get the permits, but we'd have to provide enough parking, and that wasn't feasible. In addition, although we get a good chunk of money, uh, had a good chunk of money at $100,000, that wasn't anywhere near close enough to actually build an ADU. That's Kristen in Long Beach. I want to thank our guests and all the tremendous interaction from listeners who've weighed in. We're, of course, going to keep uh, following SB9 and give you the very latest information on how that bill designed to create additional density and housing in single-family home neighborhoods, how it plays out. Joining us from the Turner Center for Housing Innovation at UC Berkeley, Policy Director David Garcia. From California, Yimby, the Pro Housing Group, Director of Communications, Matthew Lewis, and the Deputy uh, Chief Deputy Controller for the City of L. LA and longtime expert on housing, Rick Cole. Thank you all so much for being with us. Coming up, the increasing use of artificial intelligence in audiobooks. How do you feel about having a disembodied robotic voice reading a book to you? Does that work? The vast majority of books that are published don't have an audiobook version because it doesn't pencil out to hire someone to read it in the audiobook form. So can AI effectively fill that gap? We'll find out when we come back in 90 seconds. Reading uh, a book to create an audio book uh, is not an easy thing to do. I know I've done it. <laughs> it's, 
It's uh, demanding work, and the people that do it very well are tremendously skilled, and there's great demand for their services, but only a small percentage of books that are published actually have that benefit of a skilled voice actor who was able to read the book uh, for the audiobook audience. So into that void has moved AI voices, like you would find um, with your satellite navigation or uh, your um, uh, you know personal uh, voice that you have on your smartphone, and uh, that enables at significantly less cost a book to be available in audiobook format. But the question is, is that because of how inexpensive that is comparatively, is that going to move the human voice, real people, out of doing audiobooks? Uh, joining us to talk about the issue is a reporter who's been covering this very issue, uh, Brooke Warner, publisher of She Writes Press, an independent publisher of women's books. Brooke, thank you very much. Good to have you with us. No, thank you for having me. So uh, share with us when this comes into play. At what point is an AI voice um, enabling an audio book to be made where it wouldn't otherwise? What you said, I think it's cost prohibitive for a lot of authors to consider doing an audio book. A lot of publishers, of course, do audio books for their authors, but not all of them. And then with the very large number of people self-publishing these days. It's really the self-published authors, I think, who would be most considering the possibility of using the AI. And um, is AI available pretty much to every publisher at comparatively low cost to do this? It's a pretty new technology for audiobooks. It's actually the case right now that ACX, which is the largest of the audio platforms and connected to Amazon, will not let you upload a title that is AI generated. So I think this is still a little bit in the future. The voices would have to get good enough for ACX and Amazon to change their policies. But there are many, many new companies out in the marketplace who are trying to drive this and you'll see it being used for commercials and all kinds of marketing experiments but not yet for full-length manuscripts. Google has a catalog of AI voices with samples. They have a number of different languages and accents, and it notes the age range of the voice and even gives a name for the voice. Let's listen to an AI narration in an American accent they call Madison. Dorothy lived in the midst of the great Kansas prairies with Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. Their house was small. For the lumber to build, it had to be carried by wagon many miles. There were four walls, a floor and a roof, which made one room. And this room contained a rusty-looking cook stove, a cupboard for the dishes, right, Madison, a table, thank three you or very four much. chairs, and the bed. Uh, she's actually not real, but is an AI voice. <laughs> Here's a snippet of the same text being read uh, by AI in a British accent. He's named Archie. Dorothy lived in the midst of the great Kansas prairies with Uncle Henry and Aunt Em. Their house was small. For the lumber to build, it had to be carried by wagon many miles. 
And again, another AI voice. That's Archie. Now let's listen to an excerpt. Uh, This comes from the company SpeechKey. It's an audiobook recording platform that uses synthetic narration. This is an example of AI audiobook narration they have right on the homepage of their website. While living in Toronto, one of the most diverse cities in all the world, The term happiness is used in the context of mental or emotional states, including positive or pleasant emotions ranging from contentment to intense joy. It is also used in the context of life satisfaction, subjective well-being, eudaimonia, flourishing, and well-being. Since the 1960s, happiness So it seems to me those are actually pretty realistic-sounding voices. Um, if I didn't know in advance they were AI, I, I probably would think they're human voices. Brooke Warner, what do you think? I think the last one was notably stronger. The middle one felt a little stilted. And I, I think one of the things that's being talked about a lot in the book publishing industry is that they work for certain nonfiction titles, but that over the course of, you know, 13 to 15 hours of story that they are not quite carrying the intonation. And, you know, would you want to listen to that kind of voice as compared to some of these incredible voice actors that are doing, you know, particularly novels. Well, and we didn't get to examples of where they're doing the voices of people in the story. And Brooke, that's one of the things that I would think would be a potential shortcoming. I don't know that we have an example of of that. But um, where you're quoting someone in the story, I, I would think that would be challenging. Well, and a lot of those voice actors are doing accents and switching voices. I've heard some really talented people do as many as eight to ten different voices. And I, on on the one hand, I think maybe AI eventually be more qualified to do that. You can imagine that it would be able to be programmable to switch voices and do more fun things. But I don't know if that will come at a cost. And so I think we're really on the edge of a new frontier here in that you know, certainly within the next decade, I think this space is going to explode and get a lot, lot better. Bruce in Redland says, I took a test on the Internet about AI engine reading books. There were five examples. I got three right. None of them were objectionable. Uh, joining us is Emily Wu Zeller, voice artist who's narrated more than 500 audiobooks. She's the narrator of Marie Kondo's best selling The Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Let's listen, though, to uh, Emily Wu Zeller here narrating Fire Road, the Napalm Girls' journey through the horrors of war to faith, forgiveness, and peace. It's a memoir from Kim. Phuc Van Thi, whose iconic image came to define the Vietnam War. Emily's narration for Fire Road won her an Audi Award, which honors distinction in audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. While living in Toronto, one of the most diverse cities in all the world, I began to study English. And while I truly applied myself, come on now, Kim, I would exhort myself. You must get this right. It is not a simple language to grasp. So many rules, so many exceptions, so many confusing conjugations to recall. 
That's a real human being, Emily Wu Zeller. Emily, thank you so much for for being with us. Share with us what you think a human is able to bring to reading an audiobook that AI can't do. Hi, Larry. Good to be here. Um, Well, I think the points have been touched on already, which is about the range of not just voices, but emotive range, right? Uh, A human is able to tap into not just the expression of, uh, let's say, anger to happiness, right? But the contextual information about the way that we choose to phrase a sentence given who is in the room, given the uh, intentions of the particular character who is speaking. There's a lot of layers of information that go on into the way that we communicate with each other. And if I and my colleagues are doing my job right, then we're conveying all of that at any given time in in a story. The other and thing I, I, I was just going to, I'm sorry to interrupt you. The other thing I was going to say is that humans are not as predictable, I think. I don't, you know, when I'm talking with you as a human being, I don't, I can't necessarily determine in advance where you're going to take a pause, what your breath might be at a particular point. And I think it's a little harder for for AI to bring that sort of, the natural uh, quirkiness and variety that we all bring to the way that we speak. Exactly, exactly. There are idiosyncrasies that people have, that narrators have in the way that we naturally speak at our at our base level, um, that can can turn off some people, right? There are people who are dedicated followers to particular narrators and who are dead set on absolutely never listening to a particular narrator because of the way that they speak, right? And that that's something that is a joy uh, about being human is is what is unpredictable and what is unique to each of us. We're talking with voice artist Emily Wu Zeller, who's narrated more than 500 audiobooks, among them uh, the narrator of Marie Kondo's best-selling The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. When we continue, we'll be talking with the founder and CEO of SpeechKey, which is a startup audiobook, a recording platform that uses AI narration. Our Sharon McNary says, when real people and fake AI voices cut out the breaths. It sounds robotic. Boy, is that true. Uh, absolutely. And Mike in Culver City emailed, for years I've clipped and stashed articles in the Pocket app. The app has the option of having articles read back to you using an AI-generated voice. Over the years, they've just gotten better and better. The Google Voice tools, which are activated by this app on my Android, are virtually indistinguishable from professional narrators. It's all good. That's Mike in Culver City. We'll be back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about the increasing use of artificial intelligence uh, with the voicing of books, audiobooks that aren't read by a human being, but AI instead. The advantages, particularly for small publishers, are 
they don't incur the cost of hiring a voice talent to do the reading of the book. And the overwhelming majority of books that are published don't get an audiobook release. So this, of course, provides access to those who either want or need to use audiobooks to be able to have access to that content. But the concerns are, what if the AI ends up supplanting humans who do this for a living and bring their talent, their interpretive ability, uh, to the books that they are narrating? I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. We're at 866-893-KPECC, or you can email us as Eric and Pomona did. I listen to 40 to 50 audiobooks a year. I'd prefer to listen to a real human read the book, but there's so many books I'd like to listen to that just don't have the reach to warrant hiring a voice actor. I would love to have an AI version for those. That's Eric in Pomona. Also joining us is Dima uh, Abramov, who is founder and CEO of SpeechKey, an audiobook recording platform using AI narration. Dima, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, where is your technology most commonly used? Is it for the smaller titles? Thank you for having me here. Uh, this not for smaller titles. This more for nonfiction, cell growth or something like that, where you don't need to have a huge range of emotions. Okay. And, uh, and are these books that otherwise would not be using a human to read them? Yes. This is all about cost-effective solutions for many of the books that can be recorded with human narration. This, this is just not acceptable for many of the books because they're being sold like five copper copies or per month or something. And, but they still deserve to be recorded in audio, right? And what is the cost using SpeechKey to take a, a typical uh, nonfiction title and, and read it? How expensive is the technology? This is $1,000 per book. Even if it's like 70 hours or 100 hours, it doesn't matter. And to what extent can the client customize the voice, um, multiple readings? Do you work with the client to, to make sure it's just the AI reading they want? Actually, we provide a huge catalog of voices so they can pick one or several voices so we can do a full cost production. And then they can customize some different words. We call that style sheet where they can... Uh, mark down how they want this made-up word to be pronounced by machine, machine. So this is really helpful for even fiction titles. But, uh, you know, what they else can customize, they can apply specific effects for different parts of the books. For example, they can do some parts, some chapters being read uh, faster, some slower. They can apply different equalization or something. All of this that provides provided by our platform. We're talking with Dina Abramov, founder, CEO of SpeechKey, audiobook recording platform using AI narration. Uh, Maurice in West Hollywood emailed, I listen to audiobooks all the time. I can't imagine AI replacing human emotion and intonation. If I'm listening to an audiobook with a bad nar narrator, it's really hard to get through it. One of the most amazing narrators is January Lavoie. She seems to have an infinite... Um, 
a fountain of voices and just grabs your attention and pulls you into the story. And Jesse and Van Nuys says, I'm a voice actor for video games and commercials. Obviously, this is concerning for me. I'm curious if SAG-AFTRA is going to do anything about this because it takes jobs from me. That's Jesse in Van Nuys. Emily Wu Zeller, voiceover artist, um, is, is the union weighing in on this? Well, I, I am a member of the union, but I can't speak for the union. However, I know that they are very interested in, they are initiating talks with various companies and they're just, with the companies, yes, that's the short answer. We want to be hearing more from and to be able to negotiate with the union. But the fact is that the environment that we're in is in the United States is very not friendly to unions. Um, and so I think it's not so much that the union isn't doing anything. There's a huge effort to um, have negotiations. It's more that it's uh, there are not that many companies who are willing to talk to a union. For those who are interested in doing the kind of work that you do and that Jesse does, I assume they have to work their way up. They would work on smaller productions, gain attention and uh, a reel, so to speak, uh, of their work. Is that opportunity largely going to go away if AI takes over those jobs? Absolutely. And audiobooks is uh, a unique uh, niche of the creative industry and and of acting and of voiceover in that there is a pathway. Um, it's less true for people who do uh, animation or, or commercial, certainly. Um, the competition is, is the gateways, or the, the gatekeepers are, are much more, are stronger in that. For audiobooks, uh, Brooke mentioned ACX. ACX is an audible Amazon platform where anybody can get on and audition anybody to from the narrator side from the author side anybody can can look for auditions um that doesn't exist really not in not in as a robust way in the other in other voiceover um genres so if ai comes in and takes out the 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 bottom level and eventually the middle level of of voiceover narration there won't be people who can cut their teeth on anything who are willing to take it for for lower prices um and then you have this huge separation of only the people at the top who have a ton of experience at myself included um, but we're going to age out eventually. You know, yeah. we're not going to be around well, forever. And we then see no this way to replace us. Emily, we see this in radio. We're all small market yeah. radio stations started carrying syndicated programs and had no local shows. Well, how do people learn to be a broadcaster if right. if there's no place to do it? And that's what's right. happened in our industry and in, in right. radio. Heather uh, emailed us. Is this why all of the AUDM readings are so horrible? Unfortunately, AUDM makes so many New York Times stories unlistenable. I want to thank you both for being with us so much, or all three of you, I should say. That's Emily Wu Zeller, voiceover artist, Adima Abramoff of Speech Key, and Brooke Warner, publisher of She Writes Press, an independent publisher 
of women's books and an expert on the publishing industry. Thank you all so much for being with us. Hey, I just want to remind you, tickets are now on sale for the 21st Annual Film Week Academy Awards Preview this year at the historic Orpheum Theater on Broadway in downtown Los Angeles. We'll be there just a week before the Academy Awards are given out. Please join us the afternoon of Sunday, March 5th at the Orpheum. Tickets available at LAist.com slash events. I sure hope to see you there. Have a terrific day. The LAist Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAist.com sweeps.